For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Wednesday, November 1st. I watched a little of the new Frasier revival the other night. It's not for me. It's pretty lame. Sitcom-y. I was a big fan of Cheers and the original Frasier when they aired. So I started wondering as I was watching, if this is not for me, then who is this for? But I had kind of answered my own question. Of everything available on streaming, I specifically chose to go to Paramount Plus on a Sunday night, open the app, and watch the Frasier revival. Brand identity in a sea of choices. It's that simple. And in some ways, that choice alone justified whatever they paid Kelsey Grammer to return to the role. And I'm pretty sure it was a lot. Many of us laugh when we see another reboot or revival on TV. And remember, a reboot is a new version of a show, like The Wonder Years on ABC or the Dynasty reboot they did a few years ago. A revival is when they bring back at least some of the original cast to continue that story. Like the Night Court revival with John Larroquette on NBC last season. That was the highest rated new comedy in five years. Roseanne begat the Connors, which is now heading into its sixth season, hard to believe. Will and Grace got three seasons of the revival. Fuller House got five on Netflix. Sex and the City is in season two of And Just Like That. And then there are the one and dones, like Mad About You, Murphy Brown. The streaming wars have really supercharged this stuff. These platforms are looking for any way to get people to engage. The TV audience is getting older and more nostalgic. I do wonder if the peak TV bubble bursting means some of these revivals are going to go down with it. Or are they pre-branded properties that are maybe even more important than ever? The TV equivalent of empty calories to fill up on. That's what I wanted to ask Preston Beckman, my guest today. He's a career executive at NBC and Fox and considered one of the great strategists of the heyday in TV from the 80s through the 2010s. He's a consultant now. He's got some fun stories, and we talk about some scheduling wars, pilot recastings, plus the state of the binge model. So today it's Preston Beckman. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. Okay, we are here with Preston Beckman, who, in addition to being a consultant currently, he has a 35-year career with top jobs at NBC, Fox, he's scheduling, programming strategy, audience research. He knows pretty much as much as tele- about television as anybody in the business. Is that accurate, Preston? 
Uh, you say so. I don't feel that way. Oh, don't be modest. (laughs) One of the things I like about you is that you tend to speak your mind in interviews and at conferences and such. And I've always followed your comments very closely because you are very smart about this stuff. Thank you. So I want to talk about the revival trend, uh, which is not new. We've been seeing this for a while. And I was watching the Frasier revival the other night. And, you know, I, I understand why it happens. I know the economics of this. And I know that these pre-branded titles can bring awareness to services and lead to signups and engagement and preventing churn. It just felt like everyone involved was going through the motions and was there for the wrong reasons to use a reality TV line. And I want to, I want, I would like you to take us into the room where the conversations happen about these revivals and reboots and why certain shows happen, certain shows don't happen, or will the networks just do whatever they can? If they can get the rights, if they can get the talent, they will do whatever revival they can. Take us into those conversations. I believe that this has been going on through the entire history of the business. Mm -hmm. This has always been part of the programmer's bag of tricks. Uh, There are a lot of variations on a revival. I look at Frasier as a continuation. Well, it's without all the supporting characters. It's just Frasier. But it's the same character at a different stage of his life. Yeah, it's a revival. It's not a reboot. Yes, that's one variation on this. There are reimaginings where, you know, you take, a series, and you say, well, we're going to kind of look at it from a different angle. And that's been a continuing thing in the business. There are ripoffs, <laughs> you know, yeah. where, where a show that, that works. You got another network will go, well, I'll do the same show. I, I remember uh, when Friends started, there was a show on Fox called Wild Oats. And, right. uh, you know, it was the same show. And those could be okay. I mean, Happy Endings is basically friends with exactly. you know, a diff- in a different city, and that was funny. It could, yes. doesn't mean it's bad, right? The the ripoffs are there. None of none of this is saying these are good. This is this is a bag of tricks yes. that programmers have. Is, is is all I'm saying. You know, there's using movie titles. You know, saying okay, we're going to do Fargo, or we're going to do In the Heat of the Night. Again, always a part of the bag of tricks. Spinoffs have been. A big part. So not so much anymore, I feel like. Or maybe they are. I just feel like the heyday of the spinoff was the 70s, 80s, where you would have a basically a television cinematic universe of Happy Days characters or the Jeffersons and Three's Company had a bunch of spinoffs. You don't see that as much anymore. Right. But but my point being is that there's always been this effort to take the seed mm-hmm. and plant it somewhere else. Today, what might be considered spinoffs or what I like to call the colonized hits, the NCIS. um, Colonized. (laughs) I call them colonized hits, the law and order, the Chicago's, where um, you're basically oftentimes taking characters from one show. There's a lot of crossovers. Right. That's why Dick Wolf owns half of Montecito. Right. And (laughs) I I take some credit for that. (laughs) That that show was almost canceled at NBC. And, Law uh, and Order? Oh, yeah. Really? What happened? Why was it almost canceled? 
Well, the, the ratings weren't at the beginning. The ratings weren't all that great. Mm. And um, this is a true story. I know you had Warren Littlefield on the show recently. He yeah. for, if you remember, the original Law and Order had six male leads, had no female leads. Really? Yes. There was a recurring character. She was a, um, I think, I believe she was like a forensic psychiatrist or something. And she goes undercover. And uh, it was a really good episode. And the, the ratings jumped. And I took a look because even though I was a scheduler, I had pretty good research background. I took a look at the demos for the episode. And I saw there was a big spike in the women who were watching the show. So I went into Warren. I showed him the data. He immediately, while I was there, didn't say a word. He called up Dick Wolf. And he said to Dick, uh, do you want the good news or the bad news? Dick said, give me, give me the bad news first. And he said, well, uh, I'm going to cancel your show. Dick exploded. And Warren said, well, I'll keep it on the air if you add two female characters. And was there an immediate bump? I mean, obviously, uh, Dick Wolf, as you say, owns half yep. of the universe now. Right. So it, it kept him on the air long enough for him to figure it out. I mean, that's a good research success story. How about casting? There are all these stories throughout the TV industry about actors who have been cast in the pilot and then get completely summarily replaced for the rest of the show. Like the, the, My favorite is um, William Shatner was a replacement on Star Trek. So th it happens out there. And it's. I'm wondering if you are the guy at the network that has to deliver that news because you're doing the research that informs those decisions. Sometimes it would come up when we did, when I was at Fox and I was um, back in research and scheduling, we, when we did program research, um, it would come up once in a while and we would say, you know, the show's strong, but this character just doesn't seem to to resonate. There was some I, I can remember um uh house. Sure. Originally uh the lead was going to be Gary Sinise. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And um Marsha Shulman, who was head of uh, of um casting at Fox, suggested you Lord. After the pilot was shot? No, before, but, oh, but okay. Gary Sinise was person at Seinfeld, Larry Miller was originally George Costanza. That's a famous story. Yeah. And Laurie Openden, who was head of casting over at NBC, made that change. I remember one that I remember is really funny is uh, news radio. The um, janitor or whatever, the, the tech guy was Ray Romano. When I went to the table read for news radio, Ray Romano was in the cast and he was replaced by Joe Rogan. So we have Ray Romano to blame for Joe Rogan and the uh, the fan base he has now. Or, or you have, or you have probably Laurie Opendon to blame for Ray Romano being right. Ray, Ray right. That's how you want to look at things, you know. Yeah, there was a guy on Parks and Rec, if I remember, an actor that was in season one and was a lead, and then was cut, and then by season two they had Rob Lowe in there, and it became the show that everyone loved. Or sometimes there's. Um, a character who who you don't think is going to be the reason why the show is a hit. And it is. Uh, Will and Grace, if you look at the pilot, Will and Grace, Jack and Karen never interact. Hmm. And I went to the taping of the first episode after the pilot, and they had a scene together, and it was electric. So you never know. So 
the economics of the revivals and the reboots, the data must still show that people are more likely to check out a pre-branded title than they are something that is star-driven or, you know, really good and original. Is that still the case? Well, I mean, you, you, you do these things for a lot of reasons. I mean, you're marketing people. You know, it, it, well, let's put it this way. It's easier. It's just easier to launch a pre-sold vehicle. Right. Easier. I would, I might call it lazy. I actually, that. you know, I wrote down a couple of things here. I have lazy on my list. <laughs> I, you I know, mean, let's do it. You want, let's do a, a, a crime procedural. You know what? It's just easier if we call it MacGyver. Get the rights. It's, you know, let's do it. Let's do something exotic. It's just easier if we call it Hawaii Five O. But. You know, these are shows that lasted several years. And, uh, you know, that's, look, if, think about if you, if you're making a car, well, make the, make the wheels perpendicular to the road or, ver or vertical to the road. And let's see what happens with that. Mm -hmm. You know, as opposed to, well, if you put the wheels this way, the car moves. So, I mean, I, I don't, I don't look at it cynically. I mean, even though it is, it's cynic pretty cynical. Well, <laughs> one can say that. I look at it as, you know, back back in the times when I was in the business, you know, you had to program 22 hours and nobody could program 22 hours of, su of successful television. So you had to figure out ways to maximize your your audience and minimize the, uh, the, the failures. And these are all ways of doing it. And, you know, we can sure, you know, you can sit there and go, well, I wouldn't do it that way. You'd be fired. <laughs> right. Know, no, I, I, exactly. That's why. I mean, and in streaming, it's even more perilous because you've got to get attention. And so many of these shows just come and go and yes. drop off the face of the earth. Nobody pays attention. The fact that we're even talking about the Frasier reboot is proof that the Frasier revival is worthwhile. Because if it were a new show starring Kelsey Grammer as a dad with a kid who's not like him, we would never be talking about it. You know, Kelsey Graham has been in a lot of shows since Frasier, and probably yeah. most of them were not successful. So if all television was like this, that would be really sad. But, you know, in spite of all this, you know, you still get your Game of Thrones. You still mm -hmm. get your Sopranos. You still get the Mad Men. You still, you know, even to this day, you get shows that are considered successful. But it's all, it's all part of what you need to do to get eyeballs i mean look at suits a lot of streaming is really successful because of shows that are were on broadcast television this episode is brought to you by netflix presenting the crown as the beloved series bids farewell deserving of praise on every level says new york magazine throughout its groundbreaking six season run the crown has featured three different casts earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
they've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Do you think Friends will ever be rebooted? Obviously, with the Matthew Perry news, it couldn't be a straight revival with all of them. But do you think that it would be rebooted or revived? No. Why is that? I mean, NBC is working on a new version of The Office. I don't know them that well, but mm-hmm. my my feeling is that, especially now with what recently happened, I don't think that they would um, be interested in that. They, do you mean Warner Brothers or they, do you mean Marta Kaufman and David Crane? I'm talking about the cast. Oh, you're talking about the cast. Oh, I don't think the cast would ever do it. They're too rich. Right, exactly. But if it's a new if it's if it's a new group of quote unquote friends, well, you see that all the time, <laughs> right? But the title is worthwhile. The title does mean something. Well, you know, here's the other thing that is interesting about all this. You can look at television in two ways. You can look at a demo, or you can look at a cohort. Explain what a cohort is and how it's different from a demo. Sure, a demo is in essence an age group. It's it's a eighteen to thirty four. Sure. So you fall in that group. A cohort are people who move through time together. So you may be eighteen to thirty four for you know for several years in that demo, but then you move into the thirty five to forty nine demo. Your cohort moves with you. So when a network programs a demo, they're not programming people; they're programming an age group as opposed to a cohort, a group of people who now they're older. They might have different interests. They might have. So that's why you saw with a lot of these um, WB shows with some of the Fox shows, the young, that the, their ratings would start to go down among teens where they would go up among 35 to 49s. Why? Because the 35 to 49s are now, were the teens that initially started watching the show. Sure. It's the same thing with something like Friends. You know, Friends was on like a gazillion years ago. By the way, why revive it when it's watched every day all over the world on all these different platforms? There's no reason to revive it. And in fact, you know, uh, just like Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny was a very successful show for decades on Saturday morning. Why? Because the kids demo is the demo that keeps replenishing itself. Yeah, but there's a lot of shows that targeted that demo that are not as nearly as successful as Friends. There's something about that group of actors and the writing and this topic and the the playability of Friends. I, I don't disagree. I mean, and also Friends did something that is hard to do in television, which is to appear appeal to three cohorts. You either want to be them when you grow up, you are them, or you remember being them. Yeah, I just uh, I want to know what the metrics of success are for revivals and spin-offs and reboots. Like for instance, Joey, the Friends spin-off was considered a disaster, but that lasted 3 seasons. First of all, you have to replace it with something. Uh-huh. What you replace it with will generally do worse than Joey. It's just a fact. You know, I mean there are a lot of arrogant program executives who think or say I can do better, but you know, in the 25 years I was scheduling, the one thing I learned was after you replace about two, two and a half hours of programming, 
the programming beyond that will do worse than what you replaced it with. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why ratings declined in addition to cable and everything was this notion that you had to keep throwing shit against the wall mm-hmm. and hoping that something sticks when if you just stick with what you have, the cha- the chances of your ratings declining decrease, don't increase. Also, it's Kaufman, Bright, and Crane. And it's Warner Brothers. And, and you know, one of the things that goes on in the business is you want the next hit from these people. Right. And it's a relationship thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So what does Frasier have to do to be considered a successful revival? I want to know about the brand halo and engagement and some of these other metrics that the streaming services use to generate success and whether something like Frasier is giving them more of that or less than that. Well, you have to remember this, you call them streaming services, but mm-hmm. they're part of something bigger, which in, in the case of Frasier includes CBS. Yeah. One of the things that with a show like Frasier is you will see it on CBS. I think they already, they may have run the pot. The, they the did, initial. you're right. They did run the pot, yeah. These are part of ecosystems now. You can run it on CBS. You can sell it in syndication. You know, there still are local stations. So a show like Frasier, you know, in the, in the quote unquote good old days, everything started on the broadcast network. And then from there, it would go to syndication, et cetera, and then onto a streaming service. Now shows can start anywhere. So they start on a streaming service and then they go to the network. The only thing that matters is are enough people watching this? Can we prove that our sub rates went up from this? All that other stuff is bullshit. Okay, there's some controversy in the scheduling world. I saw that there's been a backlash to this Medium column that was written by Jim McCarranis, who's a former uh CBS executive, who says the job of scheduling in television is outdated. It doesn't matter, essentially, when you put these shows on television anymore. The consumer does not watch that way. There's nothing strategic about scheduling anymore, especially compared to back in the day when you were doing it. And that was all that mattered when you put these things on and the competition and the face-offs and everything. Um, You disagree with that, but why does scheduling even matter anymore when you're talking about television in a on-demand environment? Well, as someone who's scheduled to television networks for 25 years, I think what he took a piece of the job and made it the job. The sexy part of scheduling is every May, the networks would go to New York and they would announce a schedule. Mm -hmm. During the year, every once in a while, the network would make a ballsy scheduling move. So that's a part of the job. You know, the job is much bigger than that. What a scheduler does, in essence, is manage the whole company from in terms of, of programs. And getting everybody on the same page as far as the schedule, getting everybody on the same page as far as sales, as far as marketing. It's a much bigger job, part of which is moving squares around. I've told people, if scheduling didn't matter, why don't the networks have a bunch of tiles on the table, blindfold each executive, spin them around, give them a tile, and tell them to pin the tail on the schedule? Yeah, but that's my question. Why don't they do that? Forget all the other jobs. I get why those still matter. But why does scheduling still matter? Why does it matter that the voice is on at 8 o'clock versus 9 o'clock? 
for a certain percentage of the country, they still watch it that way. But if you, you know, but let's go over to like Netflix. I mean, you want to get people to stay on Netflix, mm -hmm. okay? Just like you want the lead-in to help get you to the next show. So when you're watching something on Netflix and it's over, what happens? You get prompted for something new. Yes, exactly. But the algorithm determines that. Well, what you just watched suggests what you would like to watch next. You don't need a human to say, oh, well, people who like Love is Blind may actually like to watch Beckham. Well, first of all, Netflix does have a group of humans, of human beings, mm -hmm. who help them make those decisions. Okay. I'm very good friends with one of the top people there who does that. Okay. So, you know, it's still part of it. Also, when do we when do we drop this? Yeah. Time of the year. I get that. Yeah. Here's what's going on on the other streaming services. Is there a moment? Is there an opportunity? Yeah. Here's what we have. How do we deploy it? What else is out there? Exactly. That's something that humans do. What should we drop with it? What else do we have that if we're putting this on, maybe this will, will work as well? How do we schedule, program it in terms of do we do we drop them all? Do we do it once a week? You know, we, you're starting to see that the notion of binging everything, of dropping everything, is starting to change a bit. Well, yeah, Netflix says it isn't, but then you see their decisions they're making where The Crown is coming in two separate parts in order to keep you subscribed. They've done it with Ozark, Stranger Things. The reality shows, some of them go week yeah, to and week. Even, even, broad, even Cable Channel, Walking Dead would do things like that. Oh, yeah, right? no, I know. Yeah, it's, it's Netflix that has put up a stink about it. I mean, most of the others have some kind of a different style of drops. But that's a shows. form of scheduling. That's yeah, a form it of is. Scheduling, you know. Yeah, like FX. I was surprised FX put all of the bear on mm -hmm. the service at once. And that was a choice. And somewhere, someone like you was sitting there saying, the research shows that this show will be more effective if we drop it all at once. Well, right? the, the, bear, the bear is a movie chopped up into little chunks. Sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so, so you would have done that. You would, but it's also a big hit that if stretched out over two months could potentially juice subscribers to Hulu. So they chose not to do that. Would you have done that? I would have done it the way that they did it because it's so it's so short. If it's a an hour show, maybe a little different. But for something like The Bear, I think because it's so short, because it's so intense, you know, you kind of want to just get do, have the experience of The Bear rather than oh, it's it's Tuesdays and they're dropping the next episode. Yeah. Whereas something like Only Murders in the Building feels more like a traditional show so, and exactly. they can spread that out. Uh, it's just, you know, my point is those are scheduling decisions in the modern context. Exactly. So my the point that I am making is that scheduling in the years that I was doing it, the scheduling kept evolving. I mean, when I, when I started, I would really study what the other guys were doing and I mm -hmm. would look for an opportunity or I'd look for an opening. And then at some point, it was like, you know, there's more competition than just the other networks. So is it really important to worry about what the other guys are doing? Or is it more important to put your best schedule on the air? Especially these days where you're really not just competing with the other guys. You're competing with the all, all of the Internet. And right. Reed Hastings famously said, I'm competing with sleep. Look, 24. When I was at Fox uh, in, I think, the second or the third season, 
you know, we did some uh, what we call serious maintenance studies to see, you know, what's going on with the show because the ratings were going down, which is very normal. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I discovered when, when I looked at the, the focus groups was this notion, you've got a show that takes place over 24 hours and you're spreading it over a season. So I thought about it and I called Joel Cernow, mm-hmm. who's the creator, and I said to Joel, what happens if we hold 24 until January and run it without any weeks off, just right. nonstop? And he said, fine with me. So I worked with my partner scheduling MJ Lovacari at Fox, and we came up with a plan where it started with a four-hour event. The first two hours led out of a NFL playoff game, okay? And then it was on Sunday night, Monday. We moved, it used to be on Tuesday, we moved it to Monday because that was clean. We could get through the whole season. And we kept our word, and we ran it all the way through without and the ratings went up and it won an Emmy. That's a scheduling decision. All right. I could talk for hours about this, but I appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Preston. Not a problem. All right. We are back with the call sheet. Craig, are you watching any of the World Series? Uh, I'm not. Unfortunately, my favorite team, the A's, have not been good in about the A's just 20 years. So <laughs> they just missed it. They think they drew what 5,000 fans per game this year. Uh, they got so desperate they're moving to Vegas. They, they, they were literally attending the game in spite of the owner. So things are going well. Well, nobody's watching the World Series this year. It is pretty sad. The First three games are hovering right around 8.13, 8.15 million viewers for the first three games. Don't have ratings for last night's yet, but that's not great. It's actually the lowest ever so far, and I'm ready to call it. My, I know this is not the world's toughest prediction, but I'm going to predict this will be the lowest rated World Series in history. Even if this goes to a game six or game seven because it's been a good series. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's Diamondbacks versus Texas Rangers. These are not teams that anyone outside of their markets really cares about. Questionable whether anyone in Phoenix cares, although my parents do live in Arizona most of the year and they do care about the Diamondbacks. But uh, it's just not teams with national followings and baseball's become a localized sport. So they're not going to get the ratings. The previous low for... A World Series was the COVID World Series that did have the Dodgers. The Dodgers won in six games, and that one at least got into the 9.3, I think it was, 9.35 million viewers. And that was during COVID with no fans, and people were thinking about other things that time. But post-COVID, World Series ratings have not rebounded. And I think even if this goes six, seven games and starts to tick up, it's going to be the lowest rated ever. It's a tough time when Thursday Night Football is nearly doubling the World Series. <laughs> no, it's not doubling. It's not doubling, but it is outrating. Monday Night Football was outrating as well. The highest rated for an entire series is actually tied between 1978 and 1980. 78 was the Yankees and Dodgers, which makes sense. And 1980 was the Phillies and the Royals. Both of those series went six games and they averaged, wow, 44 million viewers. Well, and what was the Super Bowl averaging that same year? That's a good question because the Super Bowl was not the draw. I don't think that it became in subsequent years. I mean, now the Super Bowl still gets over 100 million viewers, and that's pretty remarkable considering the fractured So in the mid-70s, it says around, uh, it looks to be around 50, 50 to 60 million viewers. For the Super Bowl. Yeah. 
I mean, it's just a, a sign of the times and where the culture has gone. But the Super Bowl really got supercharged in the 80s and 90s to where, you know, the, the ratings we see today. And not great for baseball, but you know what? At least the regional sports networks are crumbling and they're going to have to figure out how to repl replicate that revenue. All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Preston Beckman. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck. I want to thank our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you later this week.